When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mutual Audio Drama Network. Following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse. Once again, the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse brings you classic theater adapted and performed by some of the very best audio players from around the world. So without further ado, here's your host for this week's show. Hi, I'm Chris Barnes. Welcome to the Summerstock Playhouse. Many thanks to Jack and the Sonic Society for asking me back as an announcer this year, especially after I nicked everything that wasn't nailed down after last year's show. It took them months to track it all down. It was quite entertaining. Anyway, I tell you what, this place is stunning. They've even added a bust or two to the collection. But let's not talk about the global economy, eh? Not when we've got such an awesome performance lined up. And whilst you're enjoying the show, I'll be casing the job. Um, I mean, admiring this wonderful building. So without further ado, I have great pleasure in introducing Candy Matson, brought to life by Texas Radio Theatre. If you'd like to learn more about the Texas Radio Theater, please look for us on Facebook, iTunes, and at TexasRadioTheater.com. That's theater spelled with an R-E. You know, the classy way. It's now time for Radio Drama, where we perform on the stage of your mind. It's the realm of your imagination, where anything can happen, and usually does. Good evening. I'm Ken Rainey, your host, and welcome to the Texas Radio Theater from the Arlington Museum of Art. Each month we present audio plays in much the same way they were broadcast during the golden age of radio, with a few minor concessions to modern technology. This month we're going to take a detour back to that golden age with a look back at the lost ladies of radio. women in leading roles, our choices are few. The problem is that in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the majority of women were still housewives and expected to stay that way. Ladies were usually relegated to supporting roles. The shadow had his friend and constant companion, the lovely Margot Lane. On Gunsmoke, Matt Dillon had Kitty, who was a working girl of sorts. But after World War II, many women had gotten a taste of the working life. The dramatic climate started to change. Look at the film noir movies of the late 40s and the early 50s, which featured strong, tough-as-nails dames, quite like those pampered Ginger Rogers society girls of a decade ago. In radio, there was Candy Matson, a girl who didn't mind giving away her phone number when a good murder was involved. Yukon 28209, by the way. 
Kenny Matson was produced out of San Francisco by the husband and wife team of Monty Masters and Natalie Parks Masters. He produced and she starred. Their young son made cameo appearances. In fact, Candy Matson, despite clever dialogue, never found an on-the-air sponsor and so it lasted only two seasons. No recording survives of our episode, only the original script. This show aired June 5th, 1950. Let's see how Candy Matson handles the affair of the black cat. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. The National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Well, that was a pleasant afternoon, Rembrandt, dear. A pleasant but unprofitable. As many times as I've been to the horse races, I never seem to have the gumption to quit while I'm ahead. Like Damon Runyon once said, horse players die broke. I'm also reminded of that old song, Horses Don't Bet on People. But the scenery was lovely. I enjoyed it. Yes, Golden Gate Fields is a beautiful park. Why are you headed up into the Berkeley Hills, Candy? I wanted to avoid the traffic on the East Shore Highway this time of afternoon. And two, I just had a thought. Bully for you. So few people have them anymore. What might the idea be? I know a cozy little spot to eat over in Lafayette. How would you like to have dinner over there instead of town? Splendid, girl. Sounds delightful. My, this is rather forlorn country up this way. Yes, the real estate boys haven't caught up with it yet. Wait till they see the results of the recent census. Homes will be sprouting all over these hills like the poppies are now. Help, help me, please. What was that? It came from back there, Candy. Must be from that house. It's the only one around here. Come back. Help. Yes, it is that house. Let's find out what this is all about, Ducky. Now there's a fine start for a cozy dinner in Lafayette. It could only happen to Candy Matson, San Francisco's well-known private investigator. Whether she's at home in her penthouse on Telegraph Hill or at the races in Albany, it makes no difference. Trouble always seems to pop up its dangerous head, and this was no exception. A quiet afternoon, watching the wrong horses finish in the right positions, then driving along a road on top of Berkeley's skyline, and out of the dusk, a man's cry for help. That cry led to a maze of events that would have done justice to an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Want to hear what developed after the man called for help? Well, here's the gal to do it, Candy Matson. What was that the man said about a maze of events? He's right, but in oh, such a mild way. Just to pick a word at random, it was murder. Sorry if the word sets up like a feeling, like a fingernail down a blackboard, but leave us confronted. That's what it was, murder. And it might have gone on in ad finitum if I... Well, that's part of the story, and that comes later. What comes firster was the fact that I stopped the car, turned around and drove up in front of this lonely house high above Berkeley overlooking all of San Francisco Bay. The front door was open, so Rembrandt and I walked right in. There, by an open window, was a man on his knees, draped over the windowsill from where he had called. 
Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a heart attack. Quick, Rembrandt. Help me get him up on the couch. Surely. Then we'll get his collar open and loosen his tie. Oh, there you are. My wife, gone for a doctor. Oh, good. How long ago? Don't know. Ten minutes, maybe. Can't wait. Too late. Here, take this envelope. Deliver it. Deliver Oh, take it easy. Don't try to talk. Save all the strength you possibly can. This important must talk. Must. I've got his tie off, Candy. Yes. Never mind his collar, though. It won't do him any good. Not now. Candy, you don't mean he's... He's dead. I'm afraid so. I can't feel any pulse. This is a fine kettle of smelt. How do we explain this, Dove? The only way to explain it. Just tell what happened the way it happened. Who will believe that we were just driving along a lonely road, heard this chap call for help, went to his aid, and then had him expire gracefully half a minute later? It's too pat, Candy. The truth is always hard to swallow, Rembrandt. Well, this is cozy. What do we do now? Leave. Report it to the police and be on our way. There's nothing we can do by hanging around. We could stay and console the widow when she returns. No, I hate scenes like that. She'll cry, then I'll cry, and I'll feel miserable for a week. Come on, Ducky, let's go. You aren't forgetting the envelope, are you? No, that was the request of a dying man. I'll follow through with it. Oh! Rembrandt! What was... what's wrong? It startled me. A black cat just ran across the doorstep in front of us. Now don't start talking like that. A cat's a cat, whether it's black, green, or beige. It's only the kind that walk on two legs that makes me worry. Well, start worrying then. Here comes one of the males of the species. <coughs> oh, oh, pardon me. Certainly. Are you the doctor? Yeah, yes, that's right. I'm afraid you're just a bit late, doctor. The gentleman in there is dead. What? Jerome dead? Oh, the fool, I warned him. I'm (sighs) not being curious, you understand. But where's the man's wife? Why? Why, inside, isn't she? No. Just before he died, he said she'd gone to get you. Well, she, she called me. On the phone. I assumed it was from the house here. Well... I just knew something like this would happen. It was that black cat. Oh, Ducky, come, come. By the way, Doctor, what's the gentleman's name? Moreland. Jerome Moreland. Wait just a minute, young lady. If you you don't know him, what were you doing inside? That's a good question. Answer the good Dr. Candy. Well, my friend here and I were driving up the road. Obviously, Mr. Moreland made it to the window, opened it, and called to us as we were passing. I turned about and went in. The door was open. Found him on his knees up against the windowsill. Mm-hmm. We lifted him up into the, onto the couch, tried to make him comfortable, but it was too late. He died in less than 30 seconds. Hmm. Well, come along with me. Will you please? I need to uh, examine Jerome. Then I'll have to have some information from you for my reports. We went back inside the house and the doctor busied himself with whatever doctors busy themselves with when they examine a corpse. Rembrandt and I stood in the entrance hall and watched while we had a smoke. When the medic finished, he fired a volley of questions at us. Where we lived, how long, occupations, etc., and etc. Then he excused us. 
It felt funny being on the opposite end of an inquisition. But the doctor was nice enough about it and it had to be done. We gave up the idea of dinner in Lafayette, drove back across the Bay Bridge and ate at a place in Chinatown. And all the time I had this one tiny gnawing thought in the back of my head. What had happened to Moreland's wife? When one's husband is dying, you don't stop off for a pound of hamburger and call the doctor from the butcher shop. After dinner, Rembrandt, who had been silent, spoke up. Dove, I can't place me finger on the exact cause, but I have a slight touch of the vapors. Oh, Ducky, I'm sorry. It was either the sight of that poor man dying on the couch or the tomato chow yuck. In either case, I'd like to get home, attack the aspirin bottle, and retire to me downy. Would you be a love and drive me to me domicile? Certainly, dear. I've got a little errand I want to run, anyway. Oh, girl, are you going to entangle yourself in this Berkeley thing? You know me and my hunches, Rembrandt. Something smells about this dill. I don't like it. In the first place, I'm not too sure about the doctor. The more I think about it, the more it strikes me that he gave the late Jerome Moreland a very amateurish going over. I noticed that, too. That was a family home, Ducky. It showed great, huge gobs of loving care. If Moreland's wife was that kind of a homemaker, she would not have just run out of the house and called the doctor and forget to come back. I admit, it does sound suspicious. It's that cat, believe me. You do have a touch of the vapors. Come, Lamb, I'll take you home. You're becoming delirious. I drove Rembrandt to his place on California Street, then over Kearney to the Hall of Justice. It was just possible that my number one boy, Inspector Ray Mallard of San Francisco Homicide, might still be on the job, homiciding. The only place to park was a red zone, so I took the loyalty oath, parked, and went into the grim, gray structure of justice. Mallard was still homiciding. Well, hello, Cupcake. What brings you around to these dank dungeons? Not love, not at this late hour. If that isn't just like a suspicious foot flat... A girl drops around to say hello, and right off the bat, she gets a verbal left right in the chin. You've got to admit, Candy, the thing looks phony. Social calls are usually made a bit earlier in the evening. Okay, you got me. I'm here on business. You see, if you'd admitted it in the first place, we would have saved five lines of dialogue. What's the pitch? I just met a doctor. How thrilling. That doesn't happen to just anyone. Said doctor affected me like aphis. Uh, What's the aphis on the aphis? It has something to do with a gent who died under my very nose, Mallard, dear. Oh, that's occupational with you. Now, suppose we start from the beginning. Then I can sort of sort the facts. Do you know a man by the name of Jerome Moreland? Jerome Moreland? Are you kidding He's merely one of the world's outstanding scientists. Shake hands with the hand that unloosened his tie. He up and died this afternoon. What? Why, this is terrible, Candy. Mallard, dear, I've never seen you so quite upset. It's going to upset the entire country. Dr. Moreland was a very vital cog in the United States' international security. I'm afraid I don't understand. You will when you start reading page one in tonight's papers. Come, come, Candy, you're better than that. Moreland, Moreland, doesn't it mean anything to you? Nope, sorry. 
He's the man who played one of the leading roles in developing the A-bomb. He contributed largely to the H-bomb, and from what I've heard, he was working on something currently that would have outmoded both of them. Oh, sure. Now I remember. He made the cover of Time about a month ago, didn't he? Mm, that's the one. Imagine. And I was there when he died. How did it happen, Candy? Rembrandt and I were driving up this road in Berkeley. We heard this fellow call for help from his house. We, we went back, and there he was. Heart attack, I'm sure. What a shame. Moreland meant an awful lot to the security of this country. He was one of the colossal brains of the world. Of course, you'll be called for the inquest, Candy. Oh, sure, that I know. After all the data the doctor put down, I'm going to be the star. Um, who was the doctor? Uh, what? His name. What was the doctor's name? Mallard. And this you won't believe. I forgot to ask. And you make your living as a private eye. Oh, Candy, give it up. Marry me and I will. Uh, let's not change the subject. One of these days, one of my hints is going to seep in through that sponge-like head of yours. In the meantime, thanks for the information on Jerome Moreland. You leaving, Cupcake? Uh-huh. I've gone as far as I can here. That supersonic berry of yours, Mallard, is a little hard to crack. As I left the Hall of Justice, the fog was oozing in through the Golden Gate. The lights of the city shot up and in turn were sent back from the fog bank, giving the town a fluorescent look. I bought a paper and sure enough, there were the details on the death of Dr. Jerome Moreland. Headlines, that's what. He was everything Mallard said he was, a renowned figure. And of course, my name was mentioned prominently as having been there at the time of his death. I went home, hit the sack, and had a fistful of dreams for myself. Mallard was the star, in color. The fade-out came with me in Mallard's arms, just as the bell rang and saved me from going another round. It was nine o'clock in the following morning. Hello, Yukon 28209. Candy Matson. That's right. Uh, sorry to wake you. This is the coroner's office in Berkeley. Oh, yeah. I forgot about this. Uh, you'll have to appear at the inquest of Dr. Jerome Moreland uh, this afternoon at 1 o'clock, this office. Okay, I'll, I'll be there. Thanks. Quite all right. That definitely was the end of Moreland and Mallard in color. So I got up, showered, pressed, and started applying the lipstick. And that's when I remembered... Looking for the lipstick in my purse, there was the letter from the good Dr. Moreland. The letter the good Dr. Moreland had entrusted to me. I'd actually forgotten about it. I looked at the envelope. It was addressed to Hans Middlestadt, Snug Harbor Hotel, Embarcadero, San Francisco. I had an appointment to have my hair done, so Mr. Middlestadt would have to wait. I dropped down to see my girl, Veda. I sat, she worked, and several pin curls later, I picked up Rembrandt and drove over to the coroner's office in Berkeley. It was the usual routine, questions, answers. I testified, then Rembrandt, then the doctor we had bumped into the day before. Still no Mrs. Moreland. That 
to me, was a major issue in the whole deal. There was only one opening. That was Hans Middlestadt at the Snug Harbor Hotel on the waterfront in San Francisco. That's where I went. Uh, who? Stand to windward and I'll do it again. Middlestadt. Hans Middlestadt. I don't believe we have anyone registered here under that name. Of course, I've just returned from vacation. Well, if you can get your mind off the whispering pines, would you take a look in your book? Yes, yes, of course. Um, no, I'm terribly sorry. There doesn't seem to be any Middlestadt listed. One moment, Buster. What's that? Right there. Oh, I must have overlooked that. That is Middlestadt, isn't it? It doesn't spell Smitty. Now, come on. What's the room number? Look, miss, why don't you beat it? We're just le You're just leading with your chin. It's my chin, and I'll lead with it if I want to. Are you acquainted with Herr Middlestadt? Acquainted with him? Of course. Not only that, I have a very important letter from him. Well, why didn't you say so? Room 332, to the left after you get out of the elevator. The clerk lifted an eyebrow toward the north, indicating where the elevator was. I found it, the elevator, not the eyebrow, and hoisted myself up to the third floor. A few steps around a dingy corridor, and I was face to face with room 332. I knocked. I cooled my heels for about ten seconds and knocked again. Still no answer, so I tried the door. It squeaked open. The blinds were down and I was in an almost dusky darkness. I tumbled around for the light switch, found it on the wall next to the door and clicked it on. What I saw wasn't pretty. The body of what had been an attractive woman in her early forties sprawled out on the floor on the other side of the bed. It only took one look to tell me that she was dead. A set of finger marks around the neck told me how it had been done. And another look at her neck told me who it was. A locket with the name inscribed in back. Ruth Moreland. I'm glad I got that far because that's when the lights went out. Oh! We'll return to Candy Matson, Yukon 28209, after this brief message. Waiter! Waiter! Betty, did you ever see such poor service? I'm going to call the manager. Oh, take it easy, Wilma. What's mostly wrong is your grouch. I'm sorry, Betty, but my digestion is so upset. What you may need for your poor digestion is something that works after nature's own order. You better try Carter's little liver pills. Good advice. When your digestion's upset and you feel headachy and irritable, take Carter's little liver pills. You see, each day, nature normally produces about two pints of a vital digestive juice to help you digest your food. If nature fails, your food may remain undigested, leaving you headachy and irritable like Wilma. To feel cheerful again, take Carter's Little Liver Pills. They increase the flow of this vital digestive juice quickly, and you're on the road to feeling better. Don't depend on artificial aids to counter indigestion when Carter's Little Liver Pills aid digestion after nature's own order. 
Get them at any drugstore, only 25 cents. And now, back to Candy Matson, Yukon 2, 8209. So there I was, poking around this cheap little hotel called the Snug Harbor, minding somebody else's business and discovering some bodies in the process, when somebody decided I'd seen too much and knocked me for a good one. And I went out like a cheap lamp on a bedstand. It seemed I floated through space for an eon or two. Then vaguely, something came into audible focus. Uh, Come on. A voice. A, a familiar voice. Snap out of it. Yes. It, it was Mallard. At first, it Come sounded on, as though he were coming from a deep Get well. Hmm. I'm tired of having so to that's hover over you like a duena. Then his voice so changed. So you've got a lump on your head. I've got work to do. Little by little, his voice came into normal Candy, focus. be reasonable. Untwirl your eyes and talk to me. The lights came back on. Mallard stopped spinning around and I saw where I was. A cot in an emergency That's hospital. That's a girl. Uh, hi, Mallard. What happened? Supposing you tell me. I would if I could, but I can't. I know I got smacked, though. Mm, that's for sure. You could use that knob on your head for a bookend. How did I get here? It seems whoever tapped you on the noggin didn't want it to take permanently. They gave you the treatment lightly, just enough to put you in a blackout, then went through your purse like a tornado through Kansas. The room clerk at a joint called the Snug Harbor phones the police to come and pick up one limp tomato named Candy Matson and one very dead tomato named Ruth Moreland. Did you have anything to do with Mrs. Moreland's ugly finish, Candy? You know better than that, Mallard. Answer me this, then. Could that hotel clerk have given you the wallop? Might, but I don't think so. I was just wondering. He had shifty eyes like the 49er backfield. Okay, so somebody goes through your purse. Candy, look at me as best you can. That's a girl. Now, do you have information someone could be after? Mm-hmm. It's not in your purse. Mallard, have you been going through my purse, too? Don't get so excited. It was only in the line of duty. Don't you realize that a woman's purse is her private domain? Not when the owner of said purse is laid out unconscious on a hotel room floor. Now, answer my question. Do you have any information someone could be after? I already did. I'll repeat the answer. Uh-huh. Like I said before, it's not in your purse. Where is it? I have it on me. Oh. <laughs> Much safer than a purse. Uh, yeah. What's it all about, Candy? Honestly, Mallard, dear, I can't tell. I really don't know. What's the information? I don't know. Who killed Ruth Moreland? I don't know. <sighs> you know, Candy, sometimes our friendship makes my job awfully tough. Okay, so we don't know nothing. 
The chief is terribly unhappy about this whole thing. Take my advice. Don't go on any long trips. I wobbled to my feet and Mylard took me back down to the waterfront to get my car. Then he patted me on the hand and I went home. Now, I was more than just curious. If somebody tagged my head with a sap, I wanted to know what the reason was. So throwing etiquette out the window, I reached down inside where I was keeping the letter and opened the envelope. Addressed to Hans Middlestadt, it read, Too many after Formula 12K have decided on this method. In case my heart goes bad, you will receive this. Look for the collar on Jake. Keep up the good work. Signed, Jerry. Now, where was I? Uh, look for the collar on Jake. Jake who? Whom? What sort of collar? Barrymore? Prince of Wales? Hoover? In spite of the Jean Krupa symphony going on in my head, I wanted to hear more. The only chance of getting same was to revisit the late Dr. Jerome Moreland's house in Berkeley. I eased back over the Bay Bridge, held out my hand with two bits at the toll gate, held my breath as I passed the clam flats, and whipped up into the hills. There it was, the house where Rembrandt and I had heard the late scientist calling. Naturally, it was locked, but I knew a way to get in. Suddenly, I was. I probed about, expecting nothing, and found just that. Nothing. I tried the back door. It led out into a terrace patio. I came up short. There, under a tree, was a small boy, sitting with a cat in his lap. The same cat, I imagined, that had frightened Rembrandt. Well, hello there, Sonny. Hello. What's your name? Tommy. What's yours, lady? Candy. That's a pretty name. Yes, it is. Very pretty. I hope I didn't startle you. Well, uh, yes, you did, frankly. My apologies. I was looking for my son. He must have climbed over the fence. I didn't expect to find him here, now that both Dr. and Mrs. Moreland have passed away. Uh, Tommy, where have you been? Right here, playing with the cat. Yes, of course. Here, let me have the cat. That's a good lad. Come right home now, Tommy. Mommy says the dinner's almost ready. Again, I'm, I'm so hope I didn't uh, frighten you. Come right home, Tommy. That's a pretty cat, Tommy. How long have you had him? Oh, he's not mine. He lives here with Mr. Moreland. Oh, I see. Well, don't you think you better go along with your daddy? <laughs> That's not my daddy. What? Who is he, Tommy? I don't know. I never saw him before. What do you know about that? Listen to me, Tommy. What's the cat's name? Jake. Thanks, Tommy. I'll see you later. You've got one gross of popsicles coming on me. Sometimes I'm a dope. I should have sniffed something when the guy didn't question my presence in Moreland Yard. Now he had a head start on me. He disappeared around the corner of the house, and I ran over there. 
nothing but fence. Only one way out, and that was over. I wasn't too familiar with fence climbing tactics, but I could learn, and I did in a hurry. I shimmied over to the other side just in time to catch a glimpse of my man with the cat clutched firmly under his arm. He was running down the back lot. There was a little stream running through the property, dividing the homes on one side of the block from those on the far side. I saw the plan he had in mind. He was going to cut across a small wooden footbridge, duck up through one of the yards on the other side, out in front where he obviously had a car waiting for him. I saw I'd never be able to head him off on foot, so I ran back the way I came in, found my car and whipped around to the other side. Empty. It was a one-way street, so I followed, taking what I thought would be the same course as my quarry. I must have gone about 15 blocks when all of a sudden I was confronted by one, a crowd. Two, a couple of very messy looking cars embracing head on. What, what's the commotion, officer? Take a look. I shouldn't have to explain that. Quite a tangle. Anyone hurt? Yeah, the lady in the sedan is pretty badly banged up. The guy in the coupe is dead. The guy in the... That's him. What? Do you know him? Uh, uh, no. I, uh, was there any sign of a cat? A black cat with white paws. Have you been drinking, lady? No, officer. That man had a cat with him. I haven't seen any cats. And I was only a block away when I heard the crash. Then Jake's bound to be in the vicinity. Uh, excuse me, officer. I've got to see a cat about a man. got out of the car, left the officer with his mouth open and his arches flat. Now, if I was a cat, where would I go? Someplace away from the confusion of people and wrecked automobiles. That's where I looked and sure enough, I found Jake in five minutes. I picked him up, got back in the car, drove over to the Hall of Justice in San Francisco. I didn't have to worry about my friend in the coop. I knew where we could find him if we needed him, on a slab in the Berkeley morgue. I found Mallard sitting at his desk, going over some papers. I walked in and plopped Jake the cat right in front of him. What the? Get that thing out of here, Candy. What's the matter, Mallard, dear? Is the great, bold, foot-flat scared of cats? It doesn't look dignified. Get him out of here. Uh Uh-huh. I have a hunch, Jake. It's a very valuable cat. He belonged to the late Dr. Jerome Moreland. What are you up to, Candy? See that collar around Jake's neck? It has a little container on it. Pry it open, Mallard. I think we'll find something. Hmm, it's a solid little thing. Wait a minute. Hmm. There we are. Wait a minute. Come here, Jake. On the floor, that's it. Empty the tube, Mallard. Well, what do you know about that? Microfilm. And five will get to ten that they contain the formula for Dr. Moreland's latest development. Okay, Cupcake. Start unraveling the mystery. Well, this is going to sound incredible, but it's true, so help me. Just before Dr. Moreland died on the couch, he gave me an envelope asking me to deliver it to the name on the outside, Hans Middlestadt, Snug Harbor Hotel, Embarcadero San Francisco Waterfront. That's where I got smacked over the head, by Hans Middlestadt himself. 
He'd read the accounts in the paper stating that I was present at Moreland's demise. He figured the good doctor had given me information to pass on, whacked me on the beanie, and went through my purse. Mm, I'd like to have a talk with that guy. It's too late, Mallard. He's been atoning for his sins. He was killed this afternoon in an auto crash in Berkeley. Well, that saves me a spot of work. I don't like guys who go around slugging my favorite private eye. When I got home after having my head examined by Sap, I decided to look at the message inside the envelope. The meat of the thing indicated that Middlestadt was to look for the collar on Jake. That left me nowhere, Mallard, until I got to thinking about what Rembrandt had said earlier. It was the cat. I had kidded Rembrandt about that, but it worked. A little boy told me the cat's name was Jake. The cat carried vital information. Just how vital remains to be seen when you have your boys enlarge the microfilm. You were right. It is incredible, Candy. How about Mrs. Moreland? How did she figure in the deal? The way I get it is this. Moreland and Middlestadt had worked together. Moreland had finished his formula. He'd been working night and day. As a matter of fact, that's what brought on his fatal heart attack. He trusted no one except Hans Middlestadt. A bad trust, as Middlestadt was a foreign agent, and he was here for the express purpose of getting the facts and figures away from Moreland. He became impatient, bumped into Mrs. Moreland on her way to call the doctor, forced her to go to his hotel where he tried to make her tell him where the doctor kept his records. She wouldn't talk, so in a wild burst of frenzy, he choked her to death. That was when I walked in, shortly after. And those spy boys are tough cookies. Yes, but not especially smart. If he'd been patient, I'd given him that information willingly, according to Dr. Moreland's dying request. Isn't that irony for you? Well, Candy, I've got to admit, you used your head on this one. I most certainly did. I've still got the lump. Come on, Mallard. Knock off for a little while. You can buy me a Gibson. A Gibson? Sure, you've got one coming. And while we're at it, one big bowl of milk for Jake. Straight. Listen again next week at this same time. For excitement and adventure, just dial... Candy Madsen, Yukon 28209. Heard tonight were Lou Tobin as Hans Middlestadt, Jack Cahill as the doctor, and George Spelvin Jr. as the boy Tommy. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and directed by Monty Masters. Sound effects were created by Bill Bravmel. Eloise Rowan was heard at the organ. The characters in tonight's story are entirely fictitious. Any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. Dudley Manlove speaking. The program came to you from San Francisco. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Corporation. In the final episode of Candy Matson, our title character finally agreed to marry her policeman boyfriend, Ray Mallard, and marital bliss presumably marked the end of her paying career and the beginning of a new life as a housewife.
I'll return for our final show after a brief message from our sponsor. Who likes hamburgers? Everybody does, especially Swift's premium canned hamburgers. They're all beef, and all good Swift quality beef. Seasoned just right, cooked to perfection, and packed fresh to stay fresh. Keep Swift's premium canned hamburgers always on hand for quick meals and party snacks. They're appetizing proof that Swift makes such good canned meats. During radio's golden age, marriage was fodder for the comedians, and here's where you find many of our radio ladies, wives locked in the battle of the sexes. Sometimes they were wiser than their husbands, as in Life of Riley. At other times, they were distributed, brains were distributed evenly. For example, Blondie, or its inverse, the Bickersons. Often the women were the driving force behind the laughs. Lucille Ball first tried out her famous TV routines in a radio show called My Favorite Husband. Gracie Allen kept George Burns awake at night with her schemes. But the original, and some say the best, was Jane Ace, the original ditzy housewife who perennially left her husband, Goodman Ace, struggling to keep up with her various schemes, accidents, and inspirations. Not to mention her inspired mangling of the English language. As Jane might have said of her choice of words, and she did, if I'm wrong, I'm not far from it. Jane was Goodwin's awful wedded wife who considered that their marriage to be our clowning achievement. So whenever she used words of more than one cylinder, the results were usually too humorous to mention. Easy Aces started out as a local show in Kansas City in 1931 and was later heard on NBC and CBS throughout the 1930s and 40s. In this episode of Easy Aces, Jane thinks mink, but then we'll let them tell the story. Or, as Jane might have said, let's begin at the begin. So, without further ado. Ladies and gentlemen, Easy Aces. There comes a time in every woman's life, it seems, when she feels she can simply not go on another day unless she gets a new mink coat. Well, that time has come to Jane Ace, whom we find now in the living room of the Ace's bungalow, trying to find a way to slip this delicate matter past the master of the household. Now, dear, let me see if I've got everything down that I want to buy tomorrow. Toothbrush, soap, cleansing cream, mink coat, and lipstick. Anything you need, dear? Um, yeah, it has been. Dear, you're not listening. Put that newspaper down. Look at my shopping list. See if you want to add anything. Let's see. Uh, toothbrush, soap, cleansing cream, mink coat, and lipstick. Nope. Uh, I don't need anything. Uh, unless you want to return those ginger ale bottles, we get a nickel back on each bottle, and every little bit will help. Help! Mink coat! What is this thing here? Where? Oh, yes, mink coat. I meant to talk to you about that. You know that first shop around the corner? Well, I pass it every day, and there's this dreamy mink coat in the window. The girl wearing it looks so smart. Of course she's just a dummy, and so could I. How much? It's full length, and it'll cover all my dresses. How much? It's the softest mink. 
How much? Wait, you haven't heard the half of it. How much, Jane? $750. That sounds pretty reasonable for a good mink coat. Now you've heard the half of it. Altogether, it's $1,500. Jane, we simply can't afford it. Oh, don't be such a tightrope. Isn't that awful? Jane, look, tell you what I'm going to do. I knew you would, dear. Wait a minute now. Listen to this. I've got a big new advertising account coming up. Pretty good chance of getting it, too. The Crown Paint Company. If I get it, I make a nice commission out of it, and you can have the mink coat. Oh, thanks, dear. Wait, I said, if I get the account, I have a 50% chance of getting it. Well, there's half the coat already. And you'll get it, I know. Oh, I'm so excited, I can hardly wait. I'm all on pins and cushions. Good morning, Davis Furs. Hello, this is Mrs. Jane Ace. Mr. Davis, remember that mink coat I've been looking at? I certainly do. A lot of women have been looking at it. It certainly is. Well, could you hold that coat for me? You mean you're buying it? Well, practically. Um, What do you mean, practically? Well, my husband said it's 60% certain I can buy it. Well, good for you. That is, if he'll really let you buy it. Oh, I'm sure he will. Because if he wouldn't, he'd have come right out flat-headed and said so. And he said it's 60%. I can get it. I'll tell you what. I don't usually hold coats without at least a deposit. But I have a certain reason for doing it for you. Because if you'll buy this coat, it'll come in mighty handy. My wife will be thrilled to hear about this. In fact, I'm going to call her now and tell her. Hello. Hello, Mrs. Davis. This is a man named Davis who claims to be married to you. Oh, hello, John. You silly thing. No, silly am I. Not too silly to buy you that home out in the suburbs you've been wanting so bad. Oh, John, you don't mean it. Are we finally going to buy that home? Well, it's practically ours. What do you mean, practically? Well, it's 70% ours, honey. 70%? I think I've just sold that expensive mink coat I've had in the shop so long. Mrs. Ace just called me and said her husband told her he was 70% certain she could have it. And he wouldn't have come out flat-headed and said it if it wasn't true, right? John, you're excited. Oh, I certainly (laughs) am. You get on the phone and call Mr. Herman of the real estate company right now. Herman Real Estate. Mr. Herman speaking. Hello, Mr. Herman. This is Mrs. Davis speaking again. Oh, hello, Mrs. Davis. Have you some good news for me? The good news is we're going to buy that house. Well, I'm thrilled for you. Your husband changed his mind rather suddenly, didn't he? He certainly did. But the house is practically ours now. What do you mean, practically? Well, John came out flat-headed and said it was 80% certain we'd buy it. Just uh, waiting for a minor detail. I'm sure it's going to be all right. So, Mr. Herman, I I wanted to remind you that you promised to fix the place up, especially the painting. You said you'd paint it. It certainly does need painting. Oh, yes, it's going to be painted. Uh, As a matter of fact, that's the last house of the subdivision out there. And now that you're going to buy it, I'm going to order a paint job for every house in the section. In fact, I'll call the paint people right now. (laughs) 
Crown Paint, this is Mr. Crown. Hello, Mr. Crown. Uh, this is Mr. Herman again. Oh, hello, Herman. And how are you today? Fine. Got good news for you. On that paint order, looks like I'll be needing about 500 gallons to start with. Yes, you, you saw that last house. Well, it's about 90% certain. 90%? Well, I mean, the woman's husband didn't come out flat-headed and say no. I just want to get my order in in plenty of time so I can make the necessary arrangements. Okay, okay. I've got some arrangements to make of my own. I've been waiting to hear from you on this order before I did anything. Thanks for calling, Mr. Herman. This is Mr. Ace. This is Mr. Crown of Crown Paint. Hello, Mr. Crown. What's new? Well, it looks like we're going to be doing some advertising business. Really? You think so? I think so. It's about 99% certain. I can tell you the reason I've been hesitating. We've been waiting on a pretty big paint order, and it looks like we're going to get it now. It looks about 99% certain. Wait for my call about 3 or 4 o'clock this afternoon, and I'll give you a definite okay. And while you're waiting, start thinking of ideas for this new paint we've got. It's a one-coat paint. One coat? <laughs> That's an appropriate name. Yes, because it only takes one coat. Well, no, I, I meant because I promised to buy my wife a coat if I landed this account. Oh, I see. One coat. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, I'll work out some ideas, Mr. Crown, but I've got to make a call right now. <laughs> But three o'clock came, four o'clock came, and a call from the Crown Paint Company did not come. So finally, Ace came to his senses, decided to take matters into his own hands, and he called Mr. Crown himself. What happened to that account? You said it was 99 certain. Well, it was, but I've been waiting to hear from a certain party about that deal that I expected to put over, and I didn't hear I think I'll give him a call and find out what gives. Hello, Mr. Herman? What happened on that paint order? Well, I've been waiting to hear from that woman who was going to buy that last house. She told me it was 90% certain. I think I'll call her and see what's going on. Yes, this is Mrs. Davis. Oh, Mrs. Davis. Uh, this is Mr. Herman. How about that house? Uh, weren't you coming over to sign the papers and make a deposit? Well, I was. I was 80% certain I was, but I've been waiting to hear from my husband. I haven't heard from him all day. I'll tell you what, Mr. Herman. I'll give him a ring and I'll be back to you soon. But honey, I expected to hear from Mrs. Ace and she hasn't called me. She told me it was 70% certain. Well, Mr. Herman is calling me like mad, John. I'll call up Mrs. Ace and find out what goes on. See you later, honey. But, Mr. Davis, I've been waiting all afternoon to hear from my husband. He said it was 60% certain, but he hasn't called. I've been sitting at this phone till I'm black and blue. I even took four showers. Four showers? The phone always rings when I'm in the shower. And he hasn't called you? Mrs. Ace, don't kid me. Are you sure your husband didn't say no? Come clean now. Come clean? Mr. Davis, I told you about the four showers. I'm going to call up Mr. Ace and see what's going on or not. All of this puts Jane in a pretty tough spot. So she gets an idea. Jane decides to sew her initials into the coat. 
and if she takes this initial piece of action, the rest of the pieces will fall into place. And so, the next day... Get thee behind me, Satin. I'm going to get that mink coat. By hook or by ladder, I'm going to do it. Hello, Davis Furs. Hello, Mrs. Ace. This is Mr. Davis. Who? Davis. D-A-V... I mean... A-C-E... Davis... Jane... Dave... Oh, I mean Jane Ace. Oh, yes, Mrs. Ace. Am I glad to hear from you? Just fine. It's about those initials, Mr. Davis. I'll take the coat. Initials? J-A, in the lining. Will you put the initials in? Then your husband said it was all right? We'll cross him when we come to it. That's fine. I'm sure glad you called. I appreciate it. My wife appreciates it. In fact, I'll phone her now. John, dear, is it really true? It sure is, honey. I'll call Mr. Herman right away. Well, Mrs. Davis, I'm very happy for you. Isn't it wonderful? And I'll attend to the paint job right away. Yes, sir, Mr. Herman, this is Mr. Crown. That order for the paint? It's official now. Thank you. I've got a call to make myself now. Yes, this is Ace. Good news, Ace. I got confirmation on that advertising. It's all definite now. Terrific. Perhaps I can drop by your office first thing in the morning with some ideas for you. Yes, and don't forget that one coat paint. Oh, yes, that one coat. I mustn't forget that one coat, especially. Well, goodbye, Mr. Crown. Hello, dear. Why, hello, Jane. What are you doing downtown at the office? Dear, I've done the most terrible thing I ever did in all the years we've been married and ten months. What did you... But first, I want you to know how terrible I feel about it, and I'm going to cancel it. What did you... And I also want you to know I did it of my own violation. I should have known better. What did you... You know me. When I get the urge to do something, I become completely uninhabited. What did you... But I realize now I could never wear it with a clear conscience, no matter how cold it gets. Do. So I'm going to call and cancel the whole thing this minute. May I use your phone? No, no, wait a minute. What did you do? Did you did you order that mink coat without even waiting to find out if my deal went through? In other words, yes. What other words? But don't worry, dear. I'm going to cancel it. Uh, of course, I may have to pay the initial cost. The initial cost. I told him to put my initials in it. Oh. But there's still time to cancel it, and no sooner said the better. Well, Jane, look, you don't have to cancel it. I just put over the deal as you came in, so now you can get that coat with a clear conscience. No, dear, that's very sweet, but it's too late. I already did the damage, and this is going to be a lesson to me. A wife must always take the bitter with the better, I always say. Yes, you do always say. I'm going to teach me a lesson if it's the last thing I do. This hurts me more than it does you, but I'm calling him now. Well, if that's the way you feel about it. Davis first. Hello, Mr. Davis. You know that mink coat I was looking at? Yes. Well, I'm not looking at it anymore. Cancel it. Oh, this is terrible. Goodbye, Mrs. Ace. I've got to call my wife. Oh, no! You can't do that, John! I'm sorry, Mary, but that woman just canceled the coat. It's off. Call Herman and call off the house. But Mrs. Davis...
Davis, you can't call it off now. I thought I had the house sold to you. And I thought my husband had a mink coat sold, but the customer just canceled it. And now you're canceling the house? Oh, brother, I've got some canceling to do myself. What do you mean you don't want the paint? I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. But why? I thought you said that you had that last house sold to a Mrs. Davis. I thought I had it sold to her, just like Mrs. Davis thought Mr. Davis had sold a mink coat to another woman who just called up and canceled the coat. The whole thing depended on somebody's mink coat? That's right. That's why I'm canceling the paint job. Which reminds me, I've got some canceling to do myself. Well, maybe you're right, Jane. Maybe it is a lesson to you, and maybe it's best at that. Excuse me. Hello? Ace, this is Crown again. Yes, sir. The ad campaign is off. Finished. Canceled. Canceled? What's the matter? What happened? You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Just cancel it. I can't hardly believe it myself. Believe what? What did you cancel it? What's the reason? Mink coat. Uh, what? See? I told you you wouldn't believe it. Oh, yes, I will. Uh, I just didn't understand you. Uh, sounded as if you said mink coat. <laughs> uh, what did you say? Mink coat. <laughs> you did say mink coat. I did. Mink coat, mink coat, mink coat. There, I said it again. But what's it got to do with our advertising campaign? You asked for it. Some lunkhead promised his wife a mink coat. He backed out. He didn't buy it for his wife, so the wife's husband uh, who sells mink coats had his wife cancel a house that they were going to buy, and the man who was going to sell the house called me and canceled the big paint order. And I called you up and told you that we're going to cancel the ad campaign. You mean it all depended on some... Yes, there's no use talking about it now. It all goes back to Mr. Davis. If Mr. Davis's fur shop sells the coat, then we can talk business. But I don't see how I can talk to a furrier named Davis... Named... Dave... Named... Uh, j just, just hold phone a minute, will you please? Jane? Yes? Jane, did I hear you call a Mr. Davis just now to cancel that mink coat? Yes. And it's going to be a lesson to me. And to me. Oh, Jane, you almost ruined a whole big advertising campaign for me. Me for you. Me for you. And me for you and T for two. I didn't have anything to do with your advertising campaign. I know. And still you ruined it. It's a gift you have. Well, thanks, dear. But I still won't take the coat. You will take it. I won't. Yes, you will. Jane, I insist you buy that mink coat. Well, this is an argument I never would have believed with my own ears. You're going to buy that coat right now, you understand? Now you're just being mean. You're stubborn. You're cruel. All men are beasts. Still there, Mr. Crown? <laughs> Good. M Mr. Crown, it's going to be okay. That uh, lunkhead you mentioned just bought that mink coat for his wife. Join us next time for another visit with the Easy Aces. You've been listening to The Lost Ladies of Radio, produced by the Texas Radio Theater Company. Our executive producer is Shannon Froelich. Our production manager is Ken Rainey. Live sound effects were created by Rhiannon McMillan. This production was engineered and under the direction of Larry Groby. And Ken Rainey. At this time, we'd like to invite our cast to come back up to the microphone and introduce themselves to you. Phil Armstrong. Hi, I'm Phil Armstrong. Thanks so much for coming out today. 
Charles Beachley. I'm Charles Beachley. I played uh, Goodman Ace and Rembrandt Watson. I enjoyed it. Shannon Brock. Hi, I'm Shannon Brock. We've just had a wonderful time doing this, and thank you so much for coming to see it. Kara Daniel. Candy Madsen, Yukon 2, 8209. David DeFalco. Hi, I'm David DeFalco. Thank you all so much for coming out this afternoon. Um, seriously, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did putting it on for you. Lisa Harum. Mrs. Crail. Wilma. And Jane! Pamela Heath. Davis. Heidi Wormuth. I'm Heidi Wormuth. Very soon, Mother. You'll know. And Ken Rainey as Mr. Crown. Special thanks go to our all-volunteer cast and crew, and especially to you, for helping us to keep this valuable form of entertainment alive. On behalf of the Texas Radio Theater Company, I'm your host, Ken Rainey, saying thank you for listening and have a very nice evening. This audio play was produced by Shannon Froelich and the Texas Radio Theater Company in cooperation with the Arlington Museum of Art. For more information about our group and other productions, including live performances, please log on to texasradiotheater.com. That's theater spelled with an R-E or look for us on iTunes, Facebook, or simply Google Texas Radio Theater. Thanks for listening, and watch more radio. In a world where your eyes are in your ear and imagination rules, you'll find the Texas Radio Theater. Watch more radio at texasradio.libsyn.com. And that's this week's performance for the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse. All productions, performances, characters and scripts presented in the Playhouse belong strictly to their copyright holders, and no copyright infringement is assumed or intended. The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse is part of the Sonic Society podcast and Electric Vicuna Productions. Any shows that continue their run must have explicit permission from all parties involved. Join us next week at the Playhouse for another classic performance. With thanks to this week's host, I am your announcer, David Alt. From me, good night.
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. There, that's how long twenty seconds are. The Center for Disease Control recommends you wash your hands for at least 20 seconds as often as possible. We don't think about it a lot, but more germs are transmitted by the hands than by any other source. So keep them clean. Soap and water for 20 seconds, and you'll help prevent the spread of COVID-19, and maybe some other nasty stuff as well. This was a public service announcement from the Mutual Audio Network.